Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is the day after Halloween, but of course the spooky spirit lives in our hearts all year long. The spooky endures. (laughs) How are you today, Ben? I'm doing well. Um, As of recording this... Uh, Halloween is in our future, but it's in your past. But last night was our annual Halloween party at our house. We had all our friends over and we watched a double feature of the 1933 Invisible Man with Claude Rains, which is a movie we're a fan of, and the recent 2020 remake with Elizabeth Moss that was pretty good, I thought. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, we had a good time. Uh, It'll be a long time before we get to talk about that movie on this show. Uh, (laughs) But uh, I thought it was a really good update of the premise. So yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm doing well. Uh, Just sort of in that party recovery mode. Yeah, I did the math and I think we had a bottle of mulled wine Mm -hmm. and... I definitely gave a glass to two people, but otherwise I drank all of it. Oh, no. It was quite good, though. It was from a (laughs) local meadery, basically, called Spirit Hills. So, you know, autumnal and then like spooky name. Yeah. Uh, It was good. So shout out Spirit Hills in Alberta. Nice. Um, What are we watching today, Ben? Today, Sarah, we are watching The City of the Dead from 1960, directed by John Llewellyn Moxie and starring Christopher Lee. Okay, it's been a while since we've seen Mr. Lee. It has been. And the only other thing I know about something called the City of the Dead is in an Egyptian context? Mm, No, not Egyptian at all. Oh, okay, cool. No. Uh, The genesis of this movie is with author George Baxt, who was the creator of gay black detective Pharaoh Love in his 1966 novel A Queer Kind of Death. So still no actual relation to Egypt, despite that name, Pharaoh. Correct. Uh, We know Baxt as the writer of Circus of Horrors Mm. from earlier in 1960. That's episode 292. It is currently ranked 219 on the list. We did not like it. If I recall, it had some interesting ideas, but it really didn't coalesce yeah it had some neat gore effects though Mm -hmm. though i can't really credit that to the writing no um interesting baxt wrote city of the dead as the pilot for a planned television series starring boris karloff oh but the series pilot was never shot like that project just didn't happen and so producer milton sabotsky purchased the script in order to turn it into a feature film Now, Milton Zabotsky was born in New York City in 1921 to a family of Jewish immigrants. He got his start in film writing and editing training movies in World War II. And after the war, he wrote for television, including the influential horror anthology series Lights Out. Okay. His first feature film as a producer was the 1956 jukebox musical Rock, 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 starring Tuesday Weld. 
That film was co-produced by Max Rosenberg, another New York City second-generation Jew who was born in 1914 in the Bronx. Rosenberg's expertise had been in foreign film distribution, and so the pair moved to England to take advantage of Rosenberg's contacts there. That makes sense. Eventually, Zabotsky and Rosenberg founded Amicus Productions as a kind of rival genre film producer to horror. Uh, You, Sarah, would probably know Amicus best from their 1970s films, Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror. Oh, yeah. Okay. City of the Dead is the first Zabotsky and Rosenberg horror movie, but it's not technically an Amicus production, as the company wouldn't be officially formed until 1962. So this is sort of the like trial, the Nausicaa of oh, Amicus sure. that too, but this is them giving it a shot. Mm-hmm. Who are they rivaling? It would be hammer. hammer. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a David and Goliath situation at this point, you know? Absolutely. In expanding the story to feature length, Sabotsky added a romantic subplot by giving the lead character a boyfriend. The film's financing came from television producers in the UK in exchange for the eventual TV rights, and production began in October of 1959 at Shepperton Studios on a budget of 45,000 pounds. So this film was the directorial debut of John Llewellyn Moxie, who was born to a British family in Argentina in 1925. His entry to the industry was as an editor of British television in the 1950s, and while he would direct a number of theatrical feature films, his career was mostly focused on directing TV and TV movies through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. He worked on a lot of, you know, name brand shows, uh, Coronation Street, um, Murder, She Wrote, you know, stuff you'd have heard of, Uh, and he passed away in 2019 at age 94. Okay, wow. Now, despite being a British production with a British cast, the film is set in Massachusetts. Um, New England. Right. (laughs) That setting required the cast to adopt American accents. Okay. Now, the cast's lead, as I already mentioned, is Christopher Lee. Uh, Quite a get for this low-budget production, really, but... Lee, at this point in his career, is kind of in a Bella Lugosi yeah. um, situation where he's a name brand actor who does not command name brand pay. We last saw Lee in 1959's The Mummy, and he's appeared in a few films since then, but one that I will call out is the 1959 Italian comedy Tempiduri per i Vampiri, or Hard Times for Vampires, which was released as Uncle was a vampire in English-speaking countries. In that film, he plays Baron Roderico de Frankfurten, um, <laughs> who is actually just a parody of Lee's rendition of Dracula. Yeah, clearly. Meanwhile, uh, in Lee's personal life, uh, he had met and gotten engaged at this point to Danish painter Birgit Konka, who he would marry the following year in 1961 and remain married to for the rest of his life. Notably, not the Countess right. that we talked about in the Mummy episode, because uh, that fizzled out for different reasons. Yes. Uh, so he he got with this Danish painter. They got married in 61. They have a daughter uh, and were together for the rest of their lives. That's, that's so romantic. Yeah. 
The lead role in this film of history student Nan Barlow is played by actress Venetia Stevenson, who was born Joanna Venetia Invicta Stevenson in London in 1938. She was the daughter of film director Robert Stevenson, who's best remembered for films like The Man Who Changed His Mind, Mm -hmm. King Solomon's Mines, Jane Eyre, Old Yeller, The Absent-Minded Professor, Mary Poppins, The Love Bug, and Bedknobs and Broomsticks, among many other films. Some of those we've seen for the podcast. (laughs) Not all of them. Yeah. Uh, Her mother was actress Anna Lee, who appeared in several of her husband's films, among many others, in her long career. When Venetia's parents divorced in 1944, she stayed with her father in California, but her theater debut at age 17 was alongside her mother. She signed to RKO in 1956, a bad year to be signing a contract with RKO, and was considered a promising up-and-comer. She was really highly hyped. She had a big publicity machine around her. She was considered one of the most beautiful women in Hollywood. Um, She married Russ Tamblin in 1956, divorcing the next year. Yeah. She also dated Tab Hunter as a beard for his relationship with Anthony Perkins. And despite being extremely popular in fan magazines, her career never really took off. And after she married Don Everly in 1962 of the Everly Brothers, she quit acting, having realized that she hated doing it. She had three children with Everly, including Aaron Everly, who was the inspiration for the Guns N' Roses song Sweet Child of Mine, and was briefly married to Axl Rose for a year. Venetia passed away in 2022 at age 84. Dennis Lottis plays Nan's brother Dick. He was born in Johannesburg in 1925, where he started out as a popular um, child singer, and he was often on the radio and he grew up into like playing at clubs. No minors allowed except for that kid who can sing. Right. And after moving to Britain in the 1950s, he joined the Ted Heath Orchestra and became a popular singer and idol to young women through the 1950s. He started acting in 1959, um, but by the late 60s, his singing style was becoming very old fashioned. So he decided to retire and became an antiques dealer and restaurateur. I love that. I want to know what led to that decision. (laughs) Like, why those two things? In the 1980s, he actually started doing concerts again because um, the nostalgia cycle had come around in his favor. Sure. And he passed away on February 8th, 2023, at age 97. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I guess it makes sense that uh, some of the folks we're seeing are now coming into present day. Sure. Actress Patricia Jessel plays the witch Elizabeth Selwyn. Born in 1920 in Hong Kong to British parents, she began acting at age 16 in a production of Peter Pan, where she played Wendy, and she appeared on stage and television throughout the 1940s and 50s, but sadly passed away in 1968 at age 47 of a heart attack. Oh, wow. That's so young. Her character's lover and fellow witch is played by Valentine Dial, who was best known to British audiences as The Man in Black the host of the horror anthology radio series Appointment with Fear in the 1940s and 50s. 
born in 1908 in London. He was the son of actor Franklin Dial and actress Concordia Merrill. He appeared in minor roles in films in the 1940s, including uh, Laurence Olivier's Henry V, uh, the 1949 version of The Queen of Spades. Um, also in an adaptation of Appointment with Fear uh, to film a movie called The Man in Black in 1949. And after this movie, he had roles in The Haunting in 1963. He had a voice role in the 1967 version of Casino Royale as the voice of Dr. Noah before that character is revealed to be Woody Allen. He was also the voice of God in the 1960s version of Bedazzled. Um, He played the villainous Black Guardian for many years on the television series Doctor Who. He was the voice of the supercomputer Deep Thought on the 1980s television version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And he also played the role of Lord Angus on the first series of Black Adder. And he passed away in 1985 at age 77. So you said he was like a radio host of like Mm -hmm. this horror kind of show and that there was an film adaptation of that in like 49 Mm -hmm. or something. Why didn't we watch that? So it's an anthology film. And from what I could tell, the movie version picked stories that were more thriller than horror. Yeah, that's fair. I just uh, thought I would ask. Yeah. The film's score is by Australian composer Douglas Gamley who would become the regular composer for Amicus's genre films from here on out. He considers um, Magorski of Night on Bald Mountain fame as his biggest uh, musical influence. I mean, that makes sense. Cinematography for the film is by Desmond Dickinson, who shot Laurence Olivier's Hamlet in 1948 and also shot Horrors of the Black Museum in 1959. Yeah, I mean, Horrors of the Black Museum didn't rank very well, but it's... It looked good. Sure. (laughs) The City of the Dead was released on September 9th, 1960 in Britain by distributor British Lion. Hi, Paradox. Is that the lion? Is that the (laughs) British lion? It did make a small profit, uh, but was largely considered a box office disappointment. And it wouldn't be seen in the United States until 1961 when it was renamed Horror Hotel. Okay. U.S. critics dismissed the movie as a ripoff of both Psycho and Black Sunday. Yeah, but if it was, if they had seen it in the time that it had actually come out. Yes. So it actually began shooting before either of those movies. Yeah. Um, even though it did come out like a little bit after, but not after enough for those movies to be influences on it at all. It, you know, in this case, any resemblance really was purely coincidental. Just, uh, I guess, tapping into the zeitgeist, I suppose. Sure. Furthermore, in the United States, the picture had two minutes cut from the opening of the film because there are characters exclaiming their allegiance to Lucifer. uh, And I guess that bothered some people in the United States, even though that scene is kind of crucial to understanding the plot of the movie going forward from that point. Mm. So... A little problematic there. Oh, well. In recent years, The City of the Dead has been reappraised as an underappreciated horror classic and seen as the beginning of amicus horror. Lines from the film have been sampled in numerous songs over the years, uh, most famously uh, Rob Zombie's song Dragula. Additionally, the film's opening 
was used as a flashback scene in the low-budget 2011 British horror film Evil Calls. Today, City of the Dead is available on Blu-ray from VCI and to stream on Canopy and Tubi. Do you know which version that is? That's City of the Dead. The Horror Hotel version is available on YouTube. Okay. Well, folks, um, if you want to see the two-minute shorter version, you can head to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com, and check out our YouTube playlist. But if you want to see the full... uh, satanic version the full satanic version uh that's where you can find it yeah tubi is free with ads and canopy just requires you to have a library card yeah which you should have anyways even if you don't use it because that's how they get funding support local libraries support local libraries you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss the city of the dead from 1960 directed by john llewellyn moxie see you on the other side everybody Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The City of the Dead from 1960, directed by John Llewellyn Moxie. Sarah, what did you think? John has Moxie. (laughs) Yeah, this movie dope as hell. It's so good. This is everything that I kind of want in a horror movie. Um, I do have some nitpicks here and there, but yeah, stop listening and go watch The City of the Dead. Yeah. Uh, one of my nitpicky things is that this calling this a city is generous. <laughs> uh, it's like a hamlet. Yes. <laughs> I very much enjoyed this. Um, what did you think? Yeah, I, I thought this was fantastic. I was really pleasantly surprised. I think this totally lived up to... Its reputation is like an underappreciated horror classic. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed this. I thought this was fantastic. I guess you could say that this is probably one of the earliest cases of Christopher Lee in a folk horror kind of movie. Yes, I do want to talk about that in some depth later. Um, But for now, we should talk about the plot, which... To be fair to the American critics, is very Black Sunday meets Psycho, but that's not the whole picture. Um, let, I'll just go in because mm-hmm. I have notes to say to these <laughs> critics. Sure. Because those comparisons are superficial at best. Mm-hmm. Um, in any case, the film begins set in 1692 in Whitewood, Massachusetts. And we see a woman named Elizabeth Selwyn being burned at the stake for being a witch. I will say that watching the movie, like about midway through, I was like, oh, I we probably should have done some witch cultural historical background stuff, shouldn't we? Because <laughs> the movie's like so much deeper into that than I thought it was going to be. That's fair. Um, for folks who do want some of that uh, background, 
We do go into it a little bit in our episode when we covered Hexen, mm-hmm. um, but that's like 300 episodes ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That episode's like one of the first like 10 or 20 episodes. Yeah. So I didn't do any research on this um, because I just wanted to get straight into uh, recording and talking about this movie. But they do mention um, the death of a woman named uh, Abigail Adams for why Elizabeth someone is particularly being burned at the stake right now. Um, That name rung a bell to me, but um, like I said, I didn't dig any deeper. It could also just be like designed to sound like an old timey early Mm -hmm. American name. Elizabeth Selwyn does not ring a bell. So yeah, I'm sure we'll have ample opportunity in the future to dig in. Um, In any case, so Elizabeth is being burned at the stake when she's being taken to the stake, she calls out for her accomplice named Jethro, um, who denies knowing her. Um, but as she is burned, Elizabeth calls on Satan and Jethro does as well um, to basically curse the town, saying that, you know, together we will do his bidding um, if we can, like, fuck up these people who are killing us. And indeed, we learned that three years after the burning of Elizabeth, um, there are a series of murders with ties to witchcraft. Uh, there are more burnings at the stakes. Um, and all of this is kind of occurring, so I guess, uh, 1695-ish. We flash forward to the present, and we are learning this from historian Alan Driscoll, who is played by Christopher Lee. And he is recounting this to his class as, like, his lesson on American history of witchcraft. Um, Nan Barlow is a student in his class. She is particularly interested, but her boyfriend, who's taking this class with her, uh, thinks it's all a bunch of nonsense. Now, her boyfriend, in the movie, they call him Bill. In the credits, he is called Tom. So I will be calling him Bill, but that's where the confu- there was some confusion between Ben and I about what this guy's name was. Yeah, they, I feel like they must have called him Tom at least once because I feel like at some point in the movie, I was like, yeah, this guy's name is Tom. And then they called him Bill. And I was like, wait, is his name Bill? And yeah. I was just very confused. The actor's name is Tom. Mm. So what could have happened is someone calling him Tom as like his given name mm-hmm. rather than his character's name. But in any case, I will be calling him Bill. For sure. Nan's brother dick is also like this is a bunch of nonsense i'm a scientist i look at bacteria i don't believe in this baloney which is it's a very weird reaction to take when it's the in the context of history yeah it's a history course and like witchcraft persecution is like a thing that really happened yeah dick and bill are both very rude about it because Nan is particularly interested and she's like, well, what if there was witchcraft? I want to go and study more to learn like if there was witchcraft, if it, if there wasn't, then why did they think there was like, she has been bit by the historian bug Mm -hmm. and the two people who are like the main people in her life are like mocking it. Mm -hmm. And who boy, was that a rough start to the movie? Um, Particularly because it's like, positioned as the science versus like baloney kind of thing. Right. And like witchcraft being very much tied to the feminine identity. It also felt like the movie was like bordering on that like tension there. The other thing about that is like, she's not studying 
like how to be a witch and do magic. Yeah. She's studying history. So it ends up coming across as like, well, history is not like a really valid subject to study, which is like a kind of nonsense take. That being said, when Dick explains his beliefs that witchcraft is baloney, um, instead of taking a right, but history is good to study um, defense of it, Driscoll takes a, well, how do you know witchcraft isn't real defense of it, which does sort of, that's a whole nother ball of wax. <laughs> In any case, yeah, Bill and Dick are both like, we, we don't support this interest. Um, but they were both surprised that Nan chooses to change her vacation plans to go to Whitewood for research for her term paper at the suggestion of P- Professor Driscoll. Primary sources, folks. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. So we follow Nan. She enters Massachusetts. <laughs> the land of eternal fog. Just this thick, thick fog. And she runs into a man named Jethro, who is like, hey, you're heading to Whitewood. Can you give me a ride? And so they're talking. And then he disappears from her car mysteriously. She checks in at the Raven's Inn on February 1st and meets a Mrs. Newless, who looks a lot like Elizabeth Selwyn. In exploring the hamlet, Nan meets Reverend Russell, who is blind and talks about the like fight against evil as if it's a literal fight. And seems to be the only Christian left in the town. Yes. And then she also meets Patricia, who goes by Pat, uh, who is the reverend's granddaughter. She is new in the town as well because she's here to look after her blind grandfather because her grandmother passed away a few weeks ago. Pat sells antique books in this like really cool shop. Um, and Nan is like, oh, well, I'm looking for books on witchcraft. So Pat lends a book to Nan. In this book, Nan reads about Candlemas. Candlemas? Candlemas. Candlemas. The same thing as like Christmas. The mass of candles. Yeah. Um, Candlemas, which happens um, on February 2nd, where witches and uh, their coven must come together to sacrifice a woman who knows that she's been targeted because uh, she loses a possession. Um, A bird with a kind of arrow through it appears in place of that possession, and Woodbine gets put on the door. And to be clear, this sacrifice happens on Candlemas Eve. Yeah. Candlemas is like a real Christian holiday. It's a little like old-fashioned. I don't know anyone who talks about it anymore, but it's like that's a real thing, and it's not the witch thing. The witch thing is happening... On Candlemas Eve. Eve, presumably like in mockery of the real holiday, I would guess. Now, despite Nan reading about <laughs> this now and recounting it to someone who's also clearly a witch, uh, all these things happen to her. Um, she hears some mysterious chanting in the cellar, which happens to be right below her room. She goes to investigate and she gets taken and sacrificed. It's two weeks later, and Bill and Dick are getting worried because there's no sign of Nan. Um, They call in the police. They're no help because everyone at the inn is saying that Nan checked out and, you know, they don't know where she went. So she's now missing. Pat goes to the inn to try to get her book back. Mrs. Newless has a servant named Lottie who is mute. And it's clear that Lottie was trying to help Nan. Um, and to try to help Pat, gives Pat Nan's locket. 
which prompts Pat to go seek out Nan's family um, back in, I think they're based in Chicago. I think they say Chicago at one point, huh. which seems like a really far ways away, but no. I don't know. In any case, back to Nan's family. Yeah. Now, Driscoll is questioned by Dick and later Pat because Dick is like, hey, my sister's missing after visiting this town you mentioned. Do you, it like, is this a freaky town? Like, what's going on? Um, and of course, when he is first questioned, um, Driscoll hears the doorbell right after sacrificing a dove. Uh, oh, yeah. We also see his face in the sacrificing of Nan. Yes. Um, but it's very quick. So I think that's why we get the um, him actually sacrificing a dove. In any case, Dick and Pat um, do meet. They are like, yes, this is the locket. Yes, something strange is going on. Dick plans to head to Whitewood, but Pat needs to head home right now because she needs to look after her grandfather. As she's driving home, she picks up Jethro, who's uh, asking for a quick ride. And this is a sign that she's been targeted. Later, we see Dick drive into the town, no problem. But Bill, you know, the boyfriend, he wants to help too. So he's driving and following Dick. And as he's driving into Whitewood, um, he gets into a car accident due to seeing a vision of Elizabeth Selwyn's burning at the stake. Now, Dick begins asking questions around the town. Uh, Lottie does try to help but she gets caught by mrs newless um and she dies for it um and then we see that pat gets taken for the sacrifice for the witch's sabbath some of the results after pat is taken is that dick discovers that the reverend dies like he's been like shoved into a closet and then um he kind of says like the only way to defeat them is the shadow of the cross and then dies um, and Dick also finds Bill, who presumably crawled his way from the car accident into town. Uh, he takes Bill and puts him into his car um, to kind of recover while he goes after Pat. Dick finds the ritual going on in the crypt slash cellar and interrupts it. But while he and Pat are escaping, they are caught in the graveyard. Now, it seems like all is lost until Bill manages to get his strength together and get into the graveyard. He's told by Dick, shadow of the cross, whatever. So he goes and he picks up a gravestone cross. He gets stabbed in the back. Um, Elizabeth Selwyn slash Mrs. Newless uh, like throws the knife into his back. But by carrying the cross, its shadow literally bursts the witches into flame. Yeah, like it like shoots like, like lasers. Bolts. Yeah, like exactly. It's dope as fuck. Literally incinerating each witch. As this is going on, you know, they have to wait till like the 13th bell to do the sacrifice. But with all of this incineration, they can't complete the ritual. Elizabeth gets away. And as Dick and Pat chase her down, uh, they see that she has shriveled back up like post burning because she missed the sacrifice. Uh, and that's the end. As I said, I love this movie. I really very much enjoyed it. Here are the similarities to Psycho and Black Sunday that these critics called out. So for Psycho, we're mainly set at a hotel. Our character who we follow dies halfway. And there's like a bit of a jump scare at the end of a dead woman kind of being turned and being like, oh no, she's dead. Um, in the case of Psycho, it's the mom 
um, Mrs. Bates. Um, in this case, it's a turn and it's Elizabeth Selwyn. But then the movie ends right there. There's no like further scenes. As far as Black Sunday goes, uh, it begins with the, the burning of a witch. There's a supernatural element to it. Uh, gothic imagery. That's really it in terms of Black Sunday, as far as I could see. So I think there's a few more similarities um, with Psycho. It's not just that like we have this main character who we follow until she reaches a creepy hotel and is killed there. It's also that like the second half of the movie is about like her friends or family coming back into the town to investigate her disappearance and like talking to the hotel people who are like, oh, she just checked out and left. So I think like that structure, just like the, the basic plot structure is very psycho. With Black Sunday, further similarities I would point out would be that the witch burned at the start of the movie has a male partner that they both achieve a form of eternal life after cursing the community that burned them and that they both come back in some way to uh, cause further trouble. In both cases, for me... Mm -hmm. I do not see those similarities as enough evidence to be like, this movie isn't worth watching. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I don't agree with the critics who say like, oh, this was a ripoff, both for the chronology reasons that I was outlined before, but also because like this movie is still really good in its own way. And, you know, because it isn't actually ripping off those movies, it's not using those plot points in the way that a ripoff would where you get this feeling of like this is just happening because it happened in another movie it feels natural to the plot it all makes sense it all still hangs together it's all still you know uh, a good movie mm -hmm. i also felt like there were some things that reminded me of the old dark house a little bit yeah um particularly just the vibe of we are entering another world <laughs> the um raven's inn when she first comes into it and it's all shadowy and there's the fire and that fire's throwing these like weird shadows on the wall that really reminded me of old dark house's visuals specifically yeah um and personally i think this movie actually looks ahead for a lot of the horror that we will be seeing going forward. Like, I, I can't say specific names, but like, I feel like this feeling of folk horror of yeah. like this small town and like supernatural elements reminded me of modern movies. Um, particularly, you're going to laugh at me for this, but particularly I was like, finally, a movie that is actually a horror movie that scratches the itch that first came to me after watching Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost in <laughs> 1999. Like, <laughs> if you love that movie, you will love this one. Um, I do think this is our first really good witch movie yeah. in some time. Black Sunday had witches, as we've just said, but... Or were they vampires right. then? Structurally, the thing about Black Sunday is the witches in that movie are vampires. Like, Black Sunday, in terms of its subgenre sort of DNA is much more a vampire movie than a witch's movie. Now these witches here do have eternal life due to sacrificing and draining the blood of pretty girls, but it's all very witchy. It's all black masses and 13th hours and, and covens and things. Mm -hmm. um, also the way that it was like, yes, we are in new England. Um, we are dealing with witches and curses 
Whitewood is a fictional town, but it might as well have been Salem. And how female-focused this is. Mm -hmm. Even when we're bringing in Dick and Bill Mm -hmm. um, as Nan's relatives, uh, we're still very focused on Pat. Mm -hmm. It feels very final girl-focused. Yeah, and I think like with the witchcraft stuff, we're getting creepy things like the woodbine, like the um, the birds, uh, like the little iron like key that she finds that lets her into the cellar. These things all have like this very totemic kind of feel that like feels like you know very witchy stuff. And you know, as you said at the top of this segment. This all feels like a very early example of something that will evolve into folk horror. Yeah. Like we don't really have folk horror yet. I think the first movie we really called out as feeling like folk horror was White Reindeer. Yeah. We've seen a lot of stuff in like non-English speaking types of movies, like even as recently as um, Lake of the Dead. Mm, Yes. Um, But this, yes, it's UK, but because it's set in the US, it feels different. Well, so like, and I agree about identifying Lake of the Dead as as folk horror. And I I had kind of forgotten about that one. But I think like a key element that this movie has that I think is really key to folk horror that White Reindeer doesn't really have is the... Outsider coming in? Yeah. And the conflict between like modern and traditional, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that in folk horror, kind of where the fear is coming from in that subgenre is this idea of like, the forgotten past and these old ways and, you know, the, the folk wisdom and the idea that like, we're past all of those days of, you know, superstition of throwing salt over your shoulder. Like we live in a modern era where we're safe from evil spirits because they don't exist. And then like finding out that there are people who still believe this stuff. And part of the power of folk horror And its ambiguities is not only does the modern person discover like, oh, there's still people who practice this, but it doesn't matter for the genre whether the beliefs are real or not. What matters is that the practitioners believe in them strongly enough to take them seriously. Yeah. In this movie, obviously the witchcraft is real because we see that Jethro and Elizabeth look like people from the 17th century we even find that like alan driscoll has a a gravestone in the cemetery so clearly like the magic and stuff is real but this movie would work just as well if we actually never knew that if it was never clear if it was just staying ambiguous Mm -hmm. um and ultimately like that's one of the key factors in like the wicker man for instance which this has like a strong structural uh relationship to Absolutely. I was also thinking about the Wicker Man. Part of it is um, a friend of ours, Kyle, who we had over for a Halloween party. He hosts or rather co-hosts Kyle and Dave versus the machine. He was heading to a uh, horror movie marathon that um, the Calgary Underground Film Festival puts on. And they were showing the 73 Wicker Man. And so I was super excited for him to get to see it. Um, and it has Christopher Lee and stuff. So that was like forefront of my mind oh. as we're in this movie. And so it's really interesting to see like 13 years, I guess, before Christopher Lee does that. Mm-hmm. Um, him doing, it's not the same role by any means. For it to be the same role, he would need to be the innkeeper, yes. I think. Which I love was, again, female focused. Like, yeah. 
yeah, I loved the amount of female characters in this movie. But it was just really cool to see, like, the trajectory of Christopher Lee's career. Yeah. I mean, in this movie, he's basically like the, um, I guess, recruiter isn't quite the right <laughs> word, but like that sort of figure for this cult where it's like sure. very clear. Like, at one point um, when Dick is asking Miss Newlis about, like, you know, Nan coming through and have you seen her and do you know where she went and blah, blah, blah. Uh, Newless says like, well, we get students in here all the time. And that gets you wondering like how many students has Driscoll sent here over the years to get sacrificed? Yeah, because an important point is that this cult isn't trying to grow. It's just trying to sustain itself. Yeah. Because for a moment I was like, why would you kill someone who's clearly interested in your stuff? Yeah, why wouldn't you just try to like recruit them into being a witch? Yeah. But it's like, no, they need to kill specifically like a young pretty girl on these specific dates. Um, But yeah, it's a great moment when like Dick goes to Driscoll and he's like, well, you told her to go to Whitewood. Is it like a weird fucked up town or something? And Driscoll's like, oh, I was born there. And then Dick is like, oh, so you, you would vouch that it's totally safe. And Driscoll's like, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it's a great little moment. Um, but yeah, this isn't quite folk horror in some ways. Um, I feel like it's inching towards that idea, yeah. though, especially with the dichotomy that's set up between Dick being like science and mm-hmm. modernity yeah. and Driscoll not being like, but history is important too, but rather being like, but the old values. I think on a narrative level, it's very folk horror. On a visual aesthetic level, this is still very firmly in a gothic horror mode with its use of shadow, its use of smoke. Um, it doesn't quite inch into the more like uh, earthy aesthetic of folk horror. But I think a lot of that is coming from the fact that the whole village of Whitewood is built on a soundstage. This is, we're all on a set. And the production design of Whitewood is actually very good. I really like how good it looks. Oh, it's beautiful. It does have that low budget feel, but low budget in that great way where sparse sets filled with fog are used to like evoke kind of a nightmare realm. It reminds me of like, you know, okay, like the direction in this movie from Moxie sometimes has a feel of television and the editing has a very television feel to me as well, but good television Mm -hmm. like the Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits or the original Star Trek where we're, you know, using our budget limitations to evoke like creativity and how can we get creepy with it and these kinds of things. And obviously the added time that you get to make a film versus a TV episode means that like they can be a little more creative with things like camera movement and angles and things. Oh yes, we get a couple of Dutch angles. It's great. And the cinematography of Desmond Dickinson, who has a long film career, you know, worked on Hamlet and stuff, um, enables the movie to, even if it feels a little TV-ish at times because of the background of the crew, it really achieves like a fully cinematic look that like overcomes its low budget. I really liked the pacing Mm. of everything. Like you don't feel like one issue that I have with Psycho is that when Marion dies, you're kind of like just floating there. You're like, well, where I don't have any mooring to where the narrative is going to go. Yeah. And I think that that was what Hitchcock was going for. Um, in this film, when Nan dies, it still has some forward momentum. Yeah, it manages to like keep that 
forward arrow flying in a way where Psycho kind of gets almost like Psycho almost has to start over. Like when the people go to the motel in the second half, like it almost feels like we're telling the story a second time. Yeah. And it doesn't really feel like that here. Yeah, exactly. I think everything really culminates into a fantastically spooky horror. Like I said, the pacing, the editing. Yes, it feels TV, but I felt like everything really jived together. Mm -hmm. Um, The acting, the blocking and the atmosphere, like everything really felt of a whole. Yes. The only thing that really didn't do it for me was the modern jazz. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It doesn't really come up too often, but the part that felt particularly distracting and honestly disruptive to the mood was when we're following Dick and then Bill driving in their cars. Mm, Because it was unclear if that was just the radio or if it was like the score being like, and now the boys get to do their thing and whoa, jazz. It just, it felt so disruptive because it was supposed to be tense. My interpretation of those scenes is that that movie was diegetic coming from the car radio, but the movie's soundtrack doesn't do any audio mixing work to make it sound like it's coming from the radio. It sounds like it's the soundtrack, but the only reason why it would make sense is if it was from the radio. So I totally agree with you that that was a moment that was like, this doesn't feel like the right kind of music. You know, what you want instead is like the, you know, psycho, like, you know, um, the rest of the score really worked for me. It it was just like, that's a case in point moment, but whenever the jazz really came up and it wasn't explicitly diegetic, it just, Ugh. But I, I also understand, you know, in the 1960s, that would have just been like what was on the radio, mm-hmm. right? It wouldn't have been jarring. It would be like Taylor Swift being on the radio, you know? So it wouldn't necessarily be jarring to a contemporary audience. Absolutely. But on the other hand, everything in the movie is chosen. So it's like you didn't have to put that music there. But yes, I totally agree with you that the pacing in this movie is great. Like, even though this is a movie where... We have only a handful of locations that everyone shuttles between. Like we have like Driscoll's classroom and we have... His office is the same as the classroom. Yes. Which you don't realize is weird at the time, uh, which is like great set economy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And then like there's the inn, there's the bookstore, there's like the town square, there's like the... The gas station. The gas station and the place where the sacrifices happen underground. And that's kind of it. And all of the characters like visit all of those locations at least once, basically. Um, But the movie never has that like feel that like low budget movies have when they're just moving between like two or three locations where you're like, oh, and it kills the pacing. Like the pacing of this movie like keeps going and keeps it up. And, you know, when I say the editing is like television, like, again, I want to be clear, like I know in the past I've probably said that in like a derogatory sense, but here, what I mean when I say it feels like television is like the way that it'll build, 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 build tension up to a height and then like hard cut to a less tense scene yeah um which has this very like this ebb and flow that i associate with classic 1960s television editing but yeah it's the filmmaking here you know light shadow smoke cobwebs uh everything comes together for this really gorgeous black and white look that really matches the movie's tone and mood uh perfectly yeah so i i I clearly really love this movie Mm -hmm. Um, I think the only thing really holding it back in the ranking 
part of this conversation is that I don't think it's actually about anything. Well, yeah. So, and this is one of the reasons why like it doesn't quite hit. It's more like proto folk horror Mm -hmm. than true folk horror because you know, it kind of tries to bring up this like modern versus old ways kind of thing, but ultimately it's not about that. Um, It also brings up some like, you know, the power of Christ versus evil thing. And I will say that I I really appreciate seeing a movie where like the power of God, like really can do some shit, uh, (laughs) you know, and cast sacred flame on people. But, um, you know, it also feels a little bit like there's a part of my brain that was like, shirking away from crosses is a vampire thing. And like, why is it this easy to kill all the witches? But it's a cool visual at the end of the movie, you know, and there's some stuff here a little bit that you could dig out of this about like women versus men and, and some things like that, that you hinted at, but it's not, it's clearly not purposeful Mm -hmm. and it doesn't quite hit the social commentary angle that better folk horror can do, you know, like looking forward to the wicker man where the wicker man manages to use its Christian versus pagan conflict to have like a really subversive take on like the counterculture of the 1960s where it like undercuts your sympathies in this really clever way. And that's not quite happening here yet. Right. I will say it's fun seeing a UK movie set in the U S for once. (laughs) I think most of the actors handle the accent pretty well. um, Though Dennis Lotus as Dick slips quite a bit and Christopher Lee slips a little as well. But Massachusetts is like the perfect setting, uh, you know, obviously for the historical witchcraft, but also I feel like it's a setting that the British makers of the movie could understand with like its structure of like university towns and small forgotten villages and and things, Mm, right? Where it wasn't like so different from British social structure that it would clearly seem alien, but yeah, it, it was it was kind of funny to to see like them try to evoke America. Yeah, they um <laughs> it was a little challenging to suspend disbelief with uh how they think Americans decorate the insides of houses. Right. <laughs> um everybody's got like antique pistols on the walls and, and stuff. Like strange sculptures that look like you know, I would believe it if it, this was like a world traveler's home right. or maybe an anthropologist's home. Um, Christopher Lee's house has the heads of a leopard right? and like another predator cat. Yeah. Like, it's like, why? He's a historian. Lee is his typical intimidating self towering mm-hmm. over everyone with his booming voice and screen presence. Uh, but I think Patricia Jessel and Valentine Dial are also really good as the two witches, uh, Jethro and uh, Elizabeth. The actress playing Elizabeth was fantastic. She really like understood the assignment, I guess, to use like modern parlance. And Valentine, like even though he's doing an American accent, so it's not quite the same as his like famous radio persona voice. I get why this guy was a radio voice. And then like why a lot of his film stuff is voiceover work. He just has like this amazingly great, deep sonorific voice. Tom Naylor, who plays Bill, Bill may be like the worst character in the movie in terms of having to, not in terms of how he's written, like not worst as in badly done, but worst as in like, he's a terrible person. Um, However, 
I do think that Tom Naylor has probably the best American accent. Yeah. In this movie, like he, you really buy that he's just like some jerk jock uh, American kid. His hair is doing a lot of the lifting for that. <laughs> and I also want to call out that Venetia Stevenson, who plays Nan, does a really great job at being so very likable through the first act before she dies. And it's almost like too bad that Psycho beat this movie to the punch on that twist of like, holy shit, you killed the lead character halfway through because it, I think really has the potential to be jarring here because of how likable she is. Even though the movie does telegraph it with exactly how fucking obviously she's walking into this trap where like, as you called out in the plot summary, like there's a scene where She's like sitting there reading out to Miss Newless and she's like, yeah, and the sacrifices most prized possession would be taken before they were kidnapped. By the way, my locket's missing. Have you seen it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, she definitely has the air of a little bit of a naive Mm. university student, Mm -hmm. which also, you know, disrupts the credulity of I want to do good on this term paper so I'm going to go to this town and it's like if this was like your honors thesis Mm -hmm. sure but a term paper my Mm -hmm. girl Mm -hmm. (laughs) they try to be and move on right they're trying to justify it because at one point she says like I could get a scholarship for this which yeah which is fair but yeah I do think she's she's really really likable and that's such a key aspect for nan to have so um you know just wanted to call out like the cast is really great here great horror movie moments throughout lots of good violence and spooky kind of gory imagery like the burnt corpse at the end um fantastic atmosphere this movie is trying to compete with hammer but and maybe it's just the american accents and the low budget but watching it it felt more like a roger corman movie Maybe that's just because that's where we've seen some of the witch stuff before, like Mm -hmm. that uh, travel back in time. Yeah, the undead. Yeah. I think it's probably the American thing Mm. that you're picking up. Yeah, I don't feel like this competed with Hammer because I felt like they were doing enough of their own thing. Yes. Yeah, it's a very different vibe, which is smart, though, right? Like, if you are... If you're trying to compete with like you, you're like, hey, Hammer, I'm coming after you. You don't want to just do sloppy seconds. Right. You want to come up with like your own unique thing to offer an alternative product. Well, yeah, because like I feel like we've seen a couple of things that have tried to compete with Hammer coming out of Britain to the point where they even like hired Jimmy Sangster, right, to write their scripts. And I feel like the problem those movies had by aping Hammer so specifically you know right down to the style of cinematography and color and everything is that if i'm uh, a fan if i'm enough of a film fan to know what hammer is those movies are so close to hammer that i feel like your audience is just going to think that that movie was hammer and they're going to go away thinking like oh that was another great hammer movie i love going to hammer movies And like, maybe you're trying to trick people that way, but I feel like the way that you build a brand and you create a true competition and you, you know, say like, Hey, we're the other guys is exactly what we're seeing here. And you're totally right about it, Sarah. Like this is more the, the Marvel approach of like, and I mean that in like a 1960s Marvel way where it's like, we're the new underdog kid on the block. So what we're going to do is we're going to do the same thing our competitor does, but in a totally different way so that we can be like, we're not 
them were the other guys, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's move on to ranking. For sure. So I'm really glad to hear that you liked this movie a lot, like to the point where like you're you're like glowing over here um, <laughs> because my range for this film is quite high. Okay. Um, I would say that mine is high, but I'm not looking like top 10 or anything. Oh, okay. Mine could go top 10. Okay. Well, why don't I go first? Sure. Uh, I, I do want to call out, you know, I thought about the, the old dark house that's mm-hmm. ranked at number nine mm-hmm. because I felt like this wasn't saying anything. Mm. I wasn't really sure how I felt about it going into the top 10. That's fair. The old dark house is also particularly evocative with it being like this incredibly stylized groundbreaking film. Yeah. Very influential. And it also looks forward to some of those like. Uh, movies from like the 70s hmm. that we'll be seeing. So I didn't know if it really felt right to put the City of the Dead up here. But looking down, my eyes caught House on Haunted Hill at mm. number 30. And that movie has really great visuals as well. But it is, um, it borders the line of like spoopy and campy and devilish. Yeah. You know, Vincent Price completely rocking it. Um, and I felt, you know, I think because City of the Dead is taking itself seriously, mm-hmm. uh, that it should go above House on Haunted Hill. So that was my floor. Mm-hmm. Looking up, I found myself struggling because we have the Frankenstein movies up here. Mm-hmm. And Bride of Frankenstein is particularly evocative with its visuals. You have La Diabolique. You have even like the Body Snatcher. Black Sunday's at number 20. Mm-hmm. Right there. And I don't know if City of the Dead can match Black Sunday because Black Sunday is also pushing the envelope with gore. The City of the Dead, as much as the visuals are amazing, there's no gore here. I, I guess there's people set on fire, but like that's that's it. It's all very stuff that we've seen before. It's not pushing that envelope. Um, so I th- figured that... Um, I would have Black Sunday as my ceiling. So that's a 20 to 30 range. So I had a very similar journey to you and came to like slightly different conclusions. Um, So I also looked at Old Dark House first. So, you know, kudos to being like on the same wavelength with associating this with a movie that like on paper you maybe wouldn't. nothing to do with each Um, other. And I thought maybe this could go above Old Dark House because as good as Old Dark House is... It is partially a comedy. Um, That's true. You know, and has those comedic elements. Uh, right above Old Dark House is Horror of Dracula. And I was like, this does not beat Horror of Dracula. No. Like, sorry, no way. Below Old Dark House, you know, there's a lot of strong stuff here. I Walked with a Zombie, The Fall of the House of Usher, Yatsia Kaiden, Jigoku, Island of Lost Souls. Like, this is all fucking top tier territory, obviously, right? We're in the top 20. And it felt weird that my brain was like, I think this movie could go this high, which I do genuinely feel. Um, It just felt weird because I've never heard anyone talk about this movie ever before. (laughs) Whereas like all the rest of these are like canonical horror classics, right? But I was looking down and looking down, I spotted Black Sunday at 20 and I thought maybe this is better because, you know, while there's similarities between the two and while Black Sunday pushes the gore thing, um and is more innovative in that way, this doesn't, this feels like so much more coherent and cohesive as a narrative 
That's fair. Uh, Black Sunday had a lot of pre-production stuff going on that meant that uh, a lot of the construction of the narrative came through in the editing process. Yeah, whereas like this feels very well written. You yeah. know, it feels like research was done. It feels like everything kind of ties together. Looking below Black Sunday, though, in case we decided Black Sunday was better, um, you know, I'm still looking. I'm finding, trying to find that floor. I actually ended up making my floor 23 because I hit Quatermass Experiment and I decided I like this better than Quatermass Experiment. I think this is a better horror movie. And even though I saw like La Diabolique below there and the Frankenstein movies and Dracula, by the time I was looking like, well, I like this better than Night of the Demon. I like this better than House on Haunted Hill, you know, so I think it definitely goes above those. Um, And I really like Frankenstein and Dracula and I Married a Monster and so on. But like, I think maybe this is a better horror movie than some of those, just like in terms of its execution. Um, So my range ended up being nine to 23 with yours being, what was it end up being 20 to 30? Yep. So I think what we look for is that overlap, right? So we're looking between Black Sunday and Quatermass Experiment. Um, ends up being kind of where we should be casting our eyes. Well, I I agree with what you're saying in terms of the narrative and comparing that to Black Sunday, because even what script they had when they started shooting Black Sunday was convoluted as fuck. Yeah. City of the Dead is doing similar things, or at least pulling on similar, like, ideas of witches and, and stuff like that. And I and I do want to say, I guess coming briefly back to a point about the ripoff thing. Yeah. Like I don't think this is a ripoff, but I do think there's enough similarities between Psycho and Black Sunday and stuff that when you do see all of these movies in the same year, I can absolutely see why the critics would react like, what? This is just like those other movies, because it would be super wild if like three movies came out in the same year that had kind of the same like topic and plot structure and twist structure as each other. And yet. And yet. That is what happened. Yeah. Anyways. So I think you make a good point about, you know, where Black Sunday is. I think also the fact that Black Sunday is a period piece helps build a little bit of distance, Mm -hmm. uh, which is probably why they were able to go a little bit more hard Mm -hmm. on some of the horror visuals without a lot of pushback. I do know that if we talk about like going hard, like this isn't as gory, but um, it took years for Hammer to convince the BBFC to let them do movies that had witchcraft in them at all because the bbfc like was super against giving certificates to movies that depicted satanism in any way and like you had to really tiptoe around it how did this movie deal right so this movie's like goes so hard on it and is like so aggressive like this is a witch movie like really specifically right and like talks about the satanism and you know the parts that were edited out of the American version was the opening in the 16th century. Cause that had the direct prayers to Lucifer. That was the thing that the Americans didn't like. Um, and yet that was in the British version. So I found out that the reason was because it's set in Massachusetts. Oh, the BBF- it doesn't happen here. It happens yes. in the old colonies. Yeah. So the BBFC didn't like the implication that, you know, England could be a hotbed 
for anti-Christian, pagan, satanic stuff. Um, but they had no problem with implying that it was still alive and well in the United States. <laughs> so that's how they got away with it. But I, I just bring that up to say that, like, although this movie isn't pushing boundaries in the gore way, it actually is still pushing some boundaries. They're just not boundaries that we can see from 2023 as well as, you know, yeah. would have been a parent then. No, that that's very interesting. I also know that you really liked both of these movies. I did. Oh, all like we've been seeing a string of movies that I'm like, damn, I fucking love this. Yeah, 1960 is the fucking banger year. We haven't had like, I think this strong a single year for horror since like straight up like 1931, 32, right? Which is like maybe a maybe 39 when horror came back. Yeah. 31 um, to 32 is like a good 12 month stretch, but like 1960 is fucking killing it. Okay. I'm probably going to get flack for this, mm. but whatever. A movie that you can sit down and be like, hey, person who knows nothing about horror, let me show you a very cool horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, we can either watch The City of the Dead or Black Sunday. Black Sunday will require so much more like, hey, here's what's going on. Mm. That's beyond just the fact that it's made in a foreign language than City of the Dead. And I think also because, like I said at the top about scratching that itch of <laughs> Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, like it is wild. I can't believe how close it, like, it, it scratched that itch. It's ridiculous. I think I'm going to suggest that this goes above Black Sunday, but stays below Isle of the Dead. Okay. I do think that these are very neck and neck movies, and I'm, I'm surprised because like, I've never heard anyone talk about this movie before, like ever. And people talk about black Sunday till the cows come home. But yeah, as much as I really liked, um, black Sunday or the mask of Satan to give it a more proper name or la mascara del demonio to give it like a really proper name. Um, as much as I like that movie, I think if given a choice, I would rewatch this first Mm -hmm. so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go with you here although i would also to be honest be perfectly fine putting this below mask of satan and above son of frankenstein Uh, i think that's also a good spot i think like these two movies are very neck and neck um but i gave but i was the one giving the good reasons for ranking it above and then you agreed with me so i feel like i shouldn't argue (laughs) um you can argue against yourself that's okay (laughs) So yeah, let's 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 do it. Let's uh, knock uh, Black Sunday out of the top twenty as almost quickly as it entered. When I assume we will get flack for it, uh, and make our new number twenty, The City of the Dead, aka Horror Hotel, from nineteen sixty, directed by John Llewellyn Moxie, entering the list below Isle of the Dead, above Black Sunday. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr, or you can email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts. 
Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice, or by sharing the show on social media, or just talking about it with your friends. We are just past Halloween, but as Sarah said, the spooky season can live in your heart all year round if you want it to. Uh, so let, let people know about the show. We really appreciate it. We also really appreciate, uh, those of you who support us on Patreon. Uh, if you would like to join the patrons of the night, you can do so for as little as a dollar a month by going to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. You sign up at the five and $10 levels. You're going to get access to regular bonus content in October. We do extra special bonus content and we just finished October. So you're going to get access to all of that immediately uh, and be able to check out our cut content from our horror adjacent bonus episodes uh, as well as our uh, actual play uh, experimental episode where we and some of our friends played the horror tabletop role-playing game dread. Um, And that's a really cool episode that would have gone up yesterday on our Patreon as of today not the day we recorded this but the day it came out time it's it would have gone up the day before this episode was published yes on halloween went up on halloween um it's really really cool uh i suggest that you take a listen to it and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast so ben what are we watching next week next week sarah we are moving back on to continental europe Uh, for a French-Italian co-production. The French title is A Morir de Plaisir, uh, which means... Something of the pleasure? And Die of Pleasure. Oh. The uh, English title is Blood and Roses. Ooh. This is an erotic horror film based on Carmilla. Oh, my goodness. It's directed by Roger Vadim who is most famous for two other films, uh, one of which he would have already made by this point, uh, And God Created Woman, the uh, sort of sexy rom-com that launched Bridget Bardot to stardom. The other movie, which came after this one that you may know him from, is Barbarella. (laughs) Barbarella. Goodness. Goodness, what a movie. So don't miss... Our upcoming <laughs> erotic horror episode, <laughs> adapting the most lesbian of classic vampire stories. Love it. We will see you then, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.